To Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this episode 38, our regular September episode of Socialist News and Views. In the second half of the show, my interview with local labor organizer Emmett about historical and current problems in the left. But first, we start with news. As always, climate change is a top story internationally with a number of climate-related catastrophes making the news, the most widespread and gravest of which is in Pakistan. Never seen climate carnage like Pakistan floods, says UN chief is the title of an article on Al Jazeera on September 10th. The article quotes the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres as saying, quote, I have seen many humanitarian disasters in the world, but I have never seen climate carnage on this scale. I have simply no words to describe what I have seen today, end quote. The article says nearly 1,400 people have died so far, and over a million have been rendered homeless It also says one-third of Pakistan is still underwater. Al Jazeera said in another article last month of the initial flooding that some regions saw precipitation that was 600% higher than usual. Many articles across the internet highlight the limited emissions and role in climate change that Pakistan plays, and yet they are now dealing with the brunt of the effects. Here's a clip of two survivors speaking with Reuters journalists for a segment on September 9th. The water came in the evening. We were not told about it beforehand. It was like hell descended upon us. We could not save our belongings and barely saved our children. I had four goats that were swept away. Helicopters are available to rescue the rich. Boats came to rescue them. I had to hire a boat for 2,000 rupees to rescue my family. In other international news, the Queen of England is dead with many saying a King Charles monarchy will be much more unstable. An article on Liberation News is entitled Five of the British Empire's Worst Atrocities Under Queen Elizabeth's Reign. The article is by Amanda Yee and appears on September 9th. It lists among those atrocities the following. The Malayan Emergency from 1948 to 1960, which it says was a guerrilla war with occupying British troops that Elizabeth continued for eight years after ascending to the throne. The repression of the Mau Mau Rebellion, 1952 to 1960 in Kenya. A covert war in Yemen from 1962 to 1969, which it says by 1969 had killed 200,000 people. A propaganda offensive in Indonesia from 1965 to 1966 that the British waged from Singapore to incite violence against the Indonesian Communist Party. And finally, Bloody Sunday, January 30th, 1972, where it says, quote, During a march in Derry, Northern Ireland, British military opened fire on a crowd of protesters, shooting 26, 
14 of whom died from their injuries. During the fray, 108 rounds of ammunition were discharged by 21 soldiers firing their weapons, end quote. On my Facebook, I invited victims of colonialism and members of the quote-unquote Commonwealth to record a fuck the Queen message for this podcast. So far, we've gotten one message from an Irish Republican. Here it is. August and public Aranak. Translation of that clip is as follows. My name is Michael Cavlin, an Irish Republican. Fuck the Queen. Our day will come. Michael Cavlin is also a union nurse with Minnesota Nurses Association, which brings me to my last item. 15,000 Minnesota nurses launch historic strike to put patients before profits is the title of an article on Common Dreams by Jessica Corbett on September 12th. The article says, quote, Members of the Minnesota Nurses Association, MNA, last month voted overwhelmingly in support of what the union says is the largest private sector nurses strike in U.S. history, end quote. The article says millionaire executives, according to the Minnesota Nurses Association, are still refusing to address short staffing, nurse retention, and improved patient care. I was on the picket line every day of the three-day strike this week. I encourage everyone to continue to keep your eyes on this situation and support nurses as they fight for patients. I like to remind folks that everyone will be a patient at some point in their life, so hospital safety is an issue we should all be concerned with and something that I have continued to focus on. I find it disgusting that hospital executives can afford to pay ridiculous bonuses to current nurses because they maintain inadequate staffing and can pay for replacement workers, a.k.a. scabs, at way higher wages than their current nurses, but they refuse to just staff the hospitals appropriately. In my time as a nurse, I found hospitals did not even appropriately staff to their own standards and their own agreed-upon staffing levels. That's my rant over for now and the end of the news. We'll talk more about nurses next week. Now we go to a short essay that I first saw in Locust Review. The essay is read by the author. Here it is. Class Revenge Fan Fiction by Tish Turrell My goal is to represent realities and lives that are familiar, aspirational, and inspirational to me and my fellow working class people. I am writing fan fiction of, for, and about working class revenge. Early on in my life as a writer, I spent a lot of time restricting what I wrote and how. I was ruled by expectations about length, content, and themes. I did so much editing before I could get the words out that I often didn't write at all, so I gave up. I needed to write something for my sanity, but I couldn't handle the emotional toll of making sure what went down on the page lived up to external expectations, and quality was paramount. My creativity was taken from me because it was not going to be profitable in the long term. So I gave up those expectations and leaned into automatic writing. Whatever came into my brain went down onto the page. This is still a battle, but less so each time I do it. Reconnecting with this ability has amplified my need to create characters to represent what has been done to, and taken from, us. So powerful was the voice of capitalism in my head, which sounded a lot like my mom. Despite my loathing of it, I have become my own boss in the worst way possible. From automatic writing, I fell back in love with fanfiction. Much of my time spent from ages 11 to 23 was spent writing fanfiction for mass consumption and even editing it for cash to make ends meet. 
I was immersed in a sort of escapism that at the time I only understood as something people saw as unhealthy. I no longer see it as entirely escapism. Or maybe there are two kinds. Acquiescent escapism and aspirational escapism. I prefer the latter. I want to create characters, not that people aspire to be like, but whom people see themselves in, who end up doing things that they already aspire to do but won't, for whatever reason. Probably this penchant for fictional violence against wealth hoarders will get me into trouble eventually. Until then, however, I will continue to write about working-class robots in sewers trying to shoot the evil meat above. And now we go to that interview about problems on the U.S. left. The interview was recorded in January of this year, and on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. My name is uh, Emmett, and I'm a rank-and-file member of uh, the building trade unions here in uh, the Twin Cities, the Carpenter specifically, and um, uh, I've been... I was for about a decade an organizer in the uh, industrial workers of the world, um, mostly working in maritime at that time. Um, and I was a pretty central organizer in the General Defense Committee, which is an uh, anti-repression and community self-defense organ um, that was connected to the local IWW. Um, and yeah, I've been involved in various movements from, um, you know, environmental stuff and queer rights when I was younger neurodiversity uh as an adult my main focus i would say has been on um labor and on opposing the far right based on a facebook post i had seen from emmett i asked about the failures of left movements in the past and how we can build a sustainable movement today that can win the things we want in the future Really, one of the, the main problems with the U.S. left currently is that it's deeply disconnected from the working class. Um, and I mean that both in the sense that it's politically marginal, so it doesn't have a huge base within working people. Um, but then also, I would say that the U.S. left has a number of kind of cultural practices and um, sort of performative political things that it does that are really indicative of, I would say, kind of a middle-class uh, base that sort of reproduces itself within the U.S. left. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that it's, it's like, less legitimate because it's, you know, a different layer of workers. And, honestly, most people in the working class, in, in, in the U.S. left, are workers. They're, they tend to be maybe a different strata than a lot of other workers. The problem is that the U.S. left doesn't really tend to orient itself as a force that is connected to people's material struggles in the workplace, in housing, and I think tends to be much more a place where people go to express their political beliefs, um, to perform their political identity, without necessarily actually making a material impact on the economic conditions in which they and their, their neighbors and co-workers live. And in many ways, I think that this represents a, a kind of a subculturalism within the the American left. And it's not really the case in the left in a lot of the rest of the world. If you go to Latin America, if you go to Europe, um, you know, if you go to South Asia, um, the left there tends to, you know, 
be fairly focused on organizing workers and tenants around concrete material issues. <laughs> After hearing that, I asked how we can communicate ideas from the left internationally to workers in the United States. Is education the key or should we be doing something else to connect the struggles? I really think that we need to look at what, what are the things we do as the left in America and ask ourselves, like, are, are these things useful and are they working? You know, for example, a huge part of, like, activist culture in America is going on these marches. You march around, you march from point A to point B, you have signs and placards and things like this, and, and you, you protest something. Oh, okay, that's all well and good. That can, that can be a useful part of a campaign at times, but most of the time I go to a march, I really have a hard time identifying what the strategy is, what we're actually achieving, and how it's fitting into a broader movement strategy. Oftentimes, the marches seem to be, more than anything, a way for an activist subculture to build an identity, and then for that identity to be directed by either movement-based nonprofits or parties that are declaring themselves vanguards or subcultural cliques, or oftentimes just Democratic Party front groups, and kind of pushing people's resources and time towards various things. Oftentimes, it seems cathartic more than anything else, and I, I think that it gets very alienating after a couple years of doing it and realizing um, that it's not really necessarily achieving a concrete aim or a concrete end. Um, I think another thing we have to do is, is really ask ourselves who we orient towards. You know, a lot, a lot of young people join up in, into radical circles and they're kind of, they, they sort of get activist brain. Their whole, um, social circle becomes only activists. Um, and that is a really self-marginalizing impulse that you have to fight because if, if all the activists are hanging out over here talking to each other and they're not hanging out with all the rest of the people, then you're never going to go anywhere. <laughs> so you need, to, you need to be making it your duty to actually get, get rooted in your community in a deep way and not only doing it to, um, you know to use people and organize them, right? Like not doing it in a manipulative way, but actually genuinely caring about and living in your community with people and viewing their problems as, you know, even if it's a very mundane problem, um, viewing it as, as important. I remember when I was on the river, there was an activist who had bounced around a couple different radical um, circles in the U.S. and they, they had landed in town and they were talking about trying to come join us on the river to salt in and try to organize the workers there to do a green general strike to demand an end to the pipeline. Uh, that's, a, that's some amazing thing that, that if that would ever happen. Why would that ever happen? Though? Why would those workers do that? Like you have the trust with them. You haven't built their consciousness if you look at uh, a union that, that did radical action like that, like the Green Bands um, by the New South Wales Building Laborers Federation, you know, that was a union that had a deeply militant democratic shop floor culture for years and years and years before they made that political step where they were demanding the right to control what was being produced. Essentially, they were they were violating management prerogative and saying, we will build this, we will not build that. And that's you know, that's a line that in the U.S. we haven't crossed basically since the Treaty of Detroit. 
um, which was this kind of agreement between the United Auto Workers and the big three auto makers that unions would bargain over like the conditions of our work, but not over what we produce. And, you know, that's that's a big shibboleth within the labor movement that needs to be smashed. Destroy that concept. And, and I think it's very exciting. You look at some of the some of the sort of wildcat movements that have been kicking off. And that is sort of happening. You know, um, programmers at Google, I believe it was refusing to program things for the security state. Um, there were those Wayfair workers who were um, demanding an end to their furniture being used in the ICE convention uh, camp, the concentration camps. I agree with Emmett that we need to significantly change the way a lot of the labor movement does things and asked how we can build a more broadly focused movement that can focus on bigger political issues. It's very hard to get yourself into a position where you actually can materially improve things. And it's also very scary, like being a shop floor militant, I would say, you know, of the various things I've done in the movement, and, you know, you and I are both from Minneapolis, so we have a good idea of the sort of things people in the radical left in this town have, you know, gotten up to, and they're often very dangerous things. You know, I'll put on any specifics, but, like, I have been in some very dicey situations in this town but that is often as scary as actually taking direct action on the job because you take direct action on the job you know you're risking more than perhaps a a broken nose or a night in jail you're you're perhaps risking being fired you're perhaps risking being blacklisted and so i think part of the reason that the left retreats into the politics of subculturalism the politics of kind of um performing our politics through individual lifestyles, I think it's a reaction to not having the power to do things very concretely and materially. Um, and this is, I think, a thing we see in the far right as well. Um, you know, their their response to being kind of beaten off the streets recently, if, if you kind of get into their chat circles and get into their, get into their um, uh, communications, you see a lot of them getting dispirited and turning to very individualistic solutions or solutions that are more about performing their identity than it is about uh, moving their politics forward, which is good. I'm glad that they're defeated enough that they're choosing this kind of dead end of politics, but we shouldn't be choosing the same dead end. Um, We should be fighting our way out of it by trying to actually get ourselves into a position where we can be doing that stuff. And that's, that's very hard because in a lot of ways, when we're talking about building labor militancy and building um, building uh, like tenant militancy in the U.S., oftentimes we're not only going to have to go up against the bosses and the landlords, we also have to go up oftentimes against the nonprofit industrial complex and against uh, labor bureaucracies that are committed to a kind of status quo where uh, we do not take the more militant action that we would need to. Um, And that can be very scary. I asked Emmett about the socialist idea of a workers' party and if that could be something that could play a role in creating a strong movement with deep roots in the community. Well, I mean, in in, in full disclosure, as as you know, I'm an anarchist, so I have a, 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 a pretty specifically partisan response to to uh that that line um which is that you know i, I think that we you need uh, an organized political center around which uh working class militant politics exists i'm not sure i would call it a party uh in the sense because i think that generally speaking when we have working class parties in the u.s that try to um become that political center i think that oftentimes even when people say we'll do all of the above 
we'll do electoral work, we'll do shop floor work, we'll do this, we'll do that. Oftentimes, it's mostly the electoral work that the serious resources uh, get thrown into. And to me, that seems like throwing haymakers when you don't know how to jab. We like the. I don't think that workers come to understand our own strength by voting for someone else. I think we come to understand our own strength by taking action on the shop floor. And that's not to say I think that we should limit ourselves to these bread and butter fights on the shop floor where we're only you know going after our wages and conditions because that you know that is a common criticism of. Uh, I guess what Lenin would call like trade union um, consciousness uh, or economism. I'm, I'm not saying that. I think we can be political on the shop floor and we can be political off the shop floor. Like there is a place for mass street demonstrations. There is a place for uprisings. There is a place for um, all these other sorts of direct action. I, I, I do think that we need a political center around which working class politics develops. Um, but I, I would be skeptical of many of the models of party that we have had. And I would also say, you know, there was a time when we did have an extremely militant working class movement in the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, May Day comes out of the U.S. Um, you know, and, uh, what, what we call today anarcho-syndicalism was once called the Chicago idea because it was so heavily represented among these like largely German immigrant, largely anarchist workers in Chicago with this uh, idea that, you know, the trade unions would be the center of uh, a revolutionary movement. Um, and so, you know, we look at the, the rise of the CIO, there was, there was a party involved. I mean, the communist party was involved and it was, it was, um, you know, there were, there were several socialist parties. So yeah, I, I think the working class organization is important um, in terms of, you know, what, well, do we just need a workers' party? I mean, we, we have like three dozen workers' parties in the U.S. You know, take your pick. It's it's um. There's something else that's missing, some other ingredient, and I think that uh, it's not something that only the left alone can create. I think it's something that historical context creates. But I also think that we have a several decades long history of. Uh, kind of avoiding some of our core tasks in our historical context in terms of really gluing ourselves to that hard, often thankless work of building a militant labor movement. Lastly, I asked if there was anything else to share. I, I guess in terms of, of like the movement, um, a huge problem in, in the left also is turnover. Um, and I would say like a failure to continuously update our, um, our institutional knowledge. I, I think that, you know, and if there's anything that, you know, a, a party might be useful for in, in some ways, when I think about what, what the role of an anarchist group should be, to me, it's often being the uh, caretakers and popularizers of the lessons of previous waves of struggle. Um, and that's like the core, like the memory keepers of the movement. <laughs> um, we, we really need to have a movement with much less turnover. Um, and there's so many problems with the, the amount to which we have turnover. It means we don't have great institutional memory. Um, we don't necessarily always have people passing on the lessons from one struggle to the next. 
Um, and so we keep on often making the same mistakes over and over again from, from one way of struggle into the next. Um, oftentimes it means a much poorer understanding of history and a much poorer understanding of the conditions that have led us to where we're at. Um, and, you know, there's just some fairly simple ways that we could reduce turnover, um, one of which is to intentionally educate new people. Uh, and another of which is to really check the kind of disdain for older comrades that we have in the movement. And also, I think, really making the movement much more parent-friendly. Um, the expectation, you know, that a person should put their family life on hold or shouldn't bring their kids to meetings, like, you know, yeah, like, uh, people become parents. And we shouldn't always lose experienced activists from the movement the moment that they have a, a child. Like, they now have more reason to be fighting for a better world. So, like, something as simple as childcare at, like, every meeting should be a norm in the movement uh, and not an exception. That's our show. Thanks for listening. I, again, want to encourage everyone to keep their eyes peeled and looking at the labor movement. At the time of this episode coming out, Mary Turner, president of Minnesota Nurses Association, has said, quote, we don't have any choice but to go into round two of this war. And that's what I call it because we are fighting for our very existence, end quote. Many sources are also indicating a looming strike is very possible with freight railroad workers. So again, stay alert and solidarity. This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford.